friends, this is Katie, host of the true crime podcast, Malice and Mocktails. Join me every Monday as I dive deeper into both vintage and contemporary true crime cases from across the globe. And because true crime can be a bit of a bummer, I also share at the end of each episode, delicious mocktail and other alcohol-free beverage recipes. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Hey everybody, this is Kendra. And this is April. And you're listening to Nocturnal Distractions. Well, hello. We're doing it a little bit earlier today. We are. We're actually recording a day early too. Yes, we are. We're on it. We are. So, first, uh, the trailer that you heard at the beginning of this episode was Malice and Mocktails, true crime podcast. It's hosted by Katie and I... um, Last I listened, like I think she's been having her sister as a guest co-host. Oh, lately. really? Um, Emily, I think it's her name. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Katie. I apologize if I am. Um, but obviously she covers true crime cases from different periods and whatever. And she ends with these fantastic mocktail recipes, which are kind of cool looking. Like she does, she has one reel on there where like she shows you how to make it. And I seen what I, it you looks were- fun. You were talking about it a while ago, I think, like, when we first started and you showed me an episode on YouTube. and it's called, like, the Zero Proof Jedi Mind uh, mind Trip, I want to say. I don't know. I told her that she needs to post more of them, like, because she did it really cool looking stuff. Yeah, because wasn't she, wonder like, she didn't think it looked... Yeah, and I'm like, that was awesome. Whatever. But anyway, so, I'm... Along with being able to listen to true crime, like you can make these mocktails, and guess what? Uh, there's no alcohol, so you can drink them any time of the day you want. Just saying, relax and just take drinks, which is great for me in April because we don't drink. We do not drink, you know. Um, I know one of my favorite episodes that she has done was episode two uh, about the there was this major art heist in an art museum that has never been solved, like millions of dollars of paintings stolen. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's pretty fantastic. Uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of episodes out yet, but what she does have out is really freaking cool, and I can see it being super successful. So you guys should definitely go check her out. Um, Malice and Mocktails, that's what the name Mocktail. is. She's on Instagram. I think she has Twitter as far as I know. I know for sure she has Instagram. Um, I think she's on most of the listening platforms it find her on google and spotify and all that fun stuff so Ooh. yeah definitely check her out because that's pretty cool nice nice thank you thank you kendra yeah and now finally finally we're on hallelujah we're on part five the final part of mary beth kinning saga and i've got to say that i am never been so happy that a case is done now, see, I don't do the research. I'm always <laughs> excited when I hear about, like, I get to watch it. I, and I, but I know. I don't. That's what other people are like. They're like, I'm totally invested in this. And I'm like, I'm so sick of Mary Beth. You're like, I am so done being invested in this. <laughs> like, I'm ready to talk about something else. Like, not that the story's not in it, but I'm just ready to talk about something else. Yeah, and the next time I do a deep that. dive, like I said, if I do another one, it's going to be just long episodes. And it's not going to be, like, five parts. It'll be, like, two long parts. And this one might be a little long today, just because... I'm done. 
she's done that's why we're recording a day early too because i finally finished writing up all the notes to it and i'm like i just want to do it now do it now while it's in my head and like that's that like i sat here for like four hours straight which is a big accomplishment for me <sighs> like let's face it didn't get distracted by my phone or anything what she said i, I had to pee and yeah I haven't peed i didn't pee from like six o'clock in the morning to like Two o'clock, two thirty in the afternoon. Yep. She's like, I have not peed since five. Like and I, I had like moved. Nice, because I knew I had to get. The, I wanted to get those done. All right. Well, let's get in it. So this is what you've all been waiting for. So we're gonna do a quick recap of part four. Uh, Mary Beth's Mary Beth's fifth biological child, Nathan, is born and dies about four months later. She and Joe decide to adopt, and Michael joins the family. Three months later, Mary Beth gives birth to her sixth biological child, Mary Frances, who also dies at four months old. And then after she claims to have had her tubes tied, she winds up pregnant again. And that brought about the end of um, her seventh biological child, who was also four months old. Also, doctors at this time are trying to find a genetic defect. They're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, they're coming up empty handed with no explanation. And many are starting to think that she's responsible. Nurses, friends begin calling their newly formed CPS. Things are starting, but nothing can be done yet. So, as of right now, their adopted son, Michael, is thriving. The only living child. And this only um, cements the opinion of some that there's like a genetic issue. Right. Because he's still alive. Right. He, nothing's happened to him. And he's, uh, he's two and a half years old now. So they're like, okay, it must be something genetic. Right, and she's a good mom because he's, you know, that's the thing. Because they're always well-fed. They're always well-dressed. They've got a clean house, et cetera. Mind you, too, if you guys looked at the photos I posted last time, like, you can tell that Michael is not of Italian heritage. Not. At all. Nope. <laughs> but anyways, we'll just let her live in her delusion. Pretty much. So when he was two and a half, Michael has an accident. According to Mary Beth, he fell the length of the steep back stairs to their apartment, mm -hmm. and his head was bruised and cut, and so it was enough to warrant a trip to St. Clair's emergency room, which was literally located diagonally across the street from where they lived. So keep that in mind. The hospital is right across the street from them. Oh. Okay. Um, and it was just one of those, like, mild emergencies. You know, it wasn't anything big, you know? Um they said it was basically almost routine considering that this little boy was very like jumping exuberance jumpy. like he was just all over the place you know so it's it was just one of those happen. things but for some reason mary beth was super panicked because she sensed what the hospital staff was starting to think about her and you know and 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 she was so freaked out that she was so afraid of handling this crisis alone that that she called for an ambulance when they live across the street yes Yes. Yes. Now keep, like I said, keep that in mind too. Um, Michael only needed like a small dressing on his forehead and might've had like a mild concussion, but nothing super serious. Yeah. So that one probably was an accident. He was probably a boy. She didn't. Yeah. Or, she, or, or she pushed him down the stairs and it just didn't work out the way she wanted it to. Right. Who knows? That's not her MO though. No, it's really not. But he's also older. Yeah. The other ones, her first, like, yeah, the first two, yeah. The three and four. The two and a two, half two and, and four and a half. Yeah. 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 That's just not her MO. I don't no, think it's, I, I think this really was an accident. Mm. But like I said, but she was still panicky when she brought him home. 
And that evening he had asked to visit the neighbor's house, like across the street. Cause he always got cookies from him. And like, he was sitting there and he was eating cookies just fine. And, um, Mary Beth was telling the neighbors about how someone in the hospital had warned her that the accident would probably be investigated. Uh, recognizing the name Tinning, a nurse had placed a hotline call to Child Protective Services. But the neighbor told her, you know, don't worry, you know, um, it's normal for a hospital to make a report when a child has an accident. So she didn't think anything of it because they move around a lot. So, like, they don't have the same neighbors for very long. So, like, that they're not super know. suspicious yet. Or right. anything. So that's just one of those things. Um, it says a caseworker is believed to have called on Mary Beth, but they have a very well-furnished apartment. Mm -hmm. There's no indications of any child abuse, just an anxious mother and a well-nourished child who is accident and active and accident prone. Right. No, yeah. no big deal. And the case did not appear to need following up. So once again, social services put it aside because there's nothing to follow up on. Right. Uh, but as the days passed, Michael was obviously not recovering very well. Oh. Sandy Rowe, uh, so her sister-in-law, became very concerned about him when uh, uh, Mary Beth and Joe took him to visit after his fall, like uh -huh. a week after his fall. Um, and she said he still had symptoms of a head injury. All that week he had been throwing up. At our house, he kept screaming, holding his head, and losing his balance. Oh. Mary Beth said that when he fell, he hit the hot air duct at the foot of the stairs. After this happened, she said she took him shopping one day and could not control him. I told her there was something very wrong and she should get him to the hospital, but she did not want to go back to St. Clair's, which is right across the street. And the thing is, like, okay, they already know that, like, he felt he might have a concussion. Like, that's not a, like... If he's showing those signs of throwing up and stuff, like they're not gonna think that badly of you because obviously that could be an issue with a concussion. Yeah. Like that's just like when somebody falls and hits their head, you wanna make sure they stay awake. If they start throwing up, like that's an obvious sign. I mean, my daughter rolled off the bed one time onto my parents' wooden floor in their room and like it freaked me out, but like I made sure she stayed awake and wasn't throwing up. Like I washed her really carefully. Yeah. And if she had done any of those things, I wouldn't have had a problem taking her to the hospital no but i think that she's just really paranoid obviously i would be too if i'd killed you know, no just paranoid kids. of all the other ones and the one kid that actually fucking needs to go and could yeah yeah it, it, it gets better i mean it gets worse oh, but better yeah in the next few days michael seemed to be less dizzy but developed a heavy cold um the following sunday march 1st 1981 joe's parents had visited the family and during this visit uh he was more cheerful more lively um the grandmother Edna said that one of his favorite things was to pick up her handbag and like dump it out and like sort through all this stuff. And she had made the comment that he must be feeling better. So he was doing that. Cause he, yeah. Cause he seemed like he was feeling better. But the next morning on Monday at seven 30, right after Joe had left for work. Cause remember Mary Beth is always alone with these kids when mm. stuff happens. Mary Beth called her sister-in-law Sandy and said, I can't wake Michael. What shall I do? Are you fucking kidding? What, what do you mean? What shall you do? Do what you did with the other ones. Fucking rush him to the goddamn hospital. That's what her, that's what, that's what her sister-in-law said. She said, you know, it was a strange question for a mother of eight children to be asking. Sandy said quite firmly to get him over to the emergency room at St. Clair's. It's right across the street. Yeah, right across the street. However, rather than do this, rather than do this, Mary Beth called Dr. Melly, Mel, I don't know how to say his name, Malay's the pediatrician's office. 
Never mind the fact that when he fell down the stairs and was still awake, she called an ambulance. Right. Now he won't wake up and she calls the pediatrician. The doctors in his like group practice, kind of like a family practice, you know, just general practice office, um, made a point of being available at 10 a.m. every weekday to see children who had developed medical problems overnight. And Mary Beth was told to bring in Michael during this time. However, she neglected to tell them about the situation and what was going on with him having maybe a concussion and whatever, and that it might be an emergency. And if she had, uh, they would have told him to go to the fucking to emergency, the hospital. right? Yeah. So seven thirty in the morning, and this place doesn't see people till ten. So, so she waited till ten. Yes. Instead, she waited more than two hours for the doctor's appointment, then drove Michael to the office on the other side of town. Hospital's right across the street. I'm surprised that my, the sister-in-law just didn't come over there. Like, oh, I man. think she was just so sick. Like, I mean. Because she had two kids of her own, and, like, it's just, like, one of those things where it's, like, you have no problem taking your kids into the emergency room any other time. Um, but, so she takes him to the office on the other side of town. And it's not even because she wanted to see her pediatrician himself, because she knew he was out of town right. on vacation. And it, it's because she wanted to avoid going to the St. Clair's Hospital. So, um... Five years later, down the road, when she was asked about this, when Mary Beth was asked about this, she said, during the night, Michael's temperature went up. And so I just, I just sat with him. Then I went back to sleep and back and forth. And when I went in the morning to get him up so we could go to the doctors, he, he was not, I mean, he was responsive to a point, but he was very limp and so on and so forth. And so instead of calling the ambulance, like you did before, I went from our house on McClellan Street, put him in the car, literally threw him in the car, and went to St. Clair's, or, I mean, I went to Dr. Malay's office and went in there. So she can't even keep her story straight. And in Dr. Malay's office, there's also less likelihood of her getting immediate attention. Because that's always a thing, too, right? Like, okay, I didn't succeed in suffocating this infant the first time. They revived him, take him home, do it again. But I don't want to get attention right away. Anyway. Mm -hmm. And Monday morning was also the busiest time, obviously, because people are bringing their kids in from over the weekend that have developed colds or, or whatever else. Mary Beth was the first of the groups that were to arrive even before the pediatrician was on duty, um, about 15 minutes beforehand. And Sandy Ross was the nurse that was there. And she said she'll never forget what happens in the next few minutes. She said, it was about 9.45 a.m. I was alone in the little back room where I had all the allergy shots. I heard the front door open, and I went around and saw Mary Beth standing there with her child wrapped in a blanket. She was yelling, we need help. Until this moment, I had never suspected her of having anything to do with her baby's death. But when I saw who it was, I wanted to run out the back door. It was the only time in my entire nursing career I have wanted to run. If it had been any other patient, I would not have felt that way. But I knew something was terribly wrong. I laid Michael on a little wooden bench where the children usually sat. And as soon as I did this, Mary Beth started running all over the office, wringing her hands and yelling hysterically. Causing a scene, getting attention. I knew what I would find even before I unwrapped the blanket. Michael was dead. Yeah. I reached up 
to the wall phone. And as the phone hit the floor, I dialed zero. I told the operator I had an unresponsive child and she said help is on the way. The fire department was at the end of the street. So there's a fire department she could have taken him to too. And within five minutes or within minutes, the firemen and paramedics arrived. In the meantime, I did CPR. By now, other patients were coming in. I called out to them to please go back to their cars and wait outside. One of our doctors arrived, injected a stimulant into Michael's heart and did everything possible. Then the ambulance took him to St. Clair's. <sighs> we knew that Mary Beth lived across the street from the hospital and we asked her why she didn't go there instead of driving five miles to our office. She said she had talked to the doctor earlier that morning and he had told her to bring Michael at 10 a.m. On the way to her office, she said she heard Michael make a gurgling noise. That sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Instead of pulling over to see what was wrong, she felt she should get to the doctors as fast as possible. Again, she never explained the entire situation to the doctor she talked to earlier that morning. No, she didn't. At all. And afterwards, when she had time to think about it, um, Sandy Ross said, like, yeah, uh, trying to think here. You know, she should have known CPR. Yeah, she she because she's had babies that have had the mon like she was trained in it. She was trained in it. She just didn't want to. Yeah. So with um, I bet Michael was getting more attention than she was. Like everybody liked Michael, and that, everybody but that's, loved but Michael. That's, but that's kind of thing. It's one of those things where like if the attention was not on Mary Beth, she liked the attention. But this is when she's made that big mistake. She done fucked up now, son. Yep. And so, basically, um, I don't know where I screwed up my notes here somewhere. I was about to say sorry as if, like, I screwed up your notes. <laughs> so there was an autopsy. I think I'll get to it later on. There was an autopsy. And I think it comes in later. And, yeah, I'll get to it. But among the police, medical staff at St. Clair, some of the social services, caseworkers, waitresses of Flavorland, neighbors and former neighbors, many hoped for a different resolution as to what the cause of death was. Um, essentially, they all said the same thing, that with the death of baby after baby, they became more and more suspicious. But when Michael died, we knew. Yeah. Some of them telephoned the child abuse hotline and demanded an investigation. And some of them made several calls over and over again. One said, I called the hotline, the welfare department, Barney Wald, Ron, the sheriff, the Schenectady police, and Daly's funeral home, which was the funeral home she used for every single one of her babies, mind you. Um, Barney said that if there was anything wrong, the medical examiner would have found it. Mr. Daly said there was not a mark on the child. I told them there has to be some reason why these kids are dying. I was very rude. I can be rude when I'm upset. And I was upset because I love kids. The only person I got results from was a lady on the child abuse hotline. At least she listened to what I had to say, and I raised hell. So it wasn't like a concussion? Um, no, this is what they found. Okay. Um, at the autopsy, it showed the illness as acute pneumonia and that the family history is bizarre. Certainly no brain damage. The only unusual finding at the autopsy was a small patch of bronchial pneumonia in one lung. One lung. However, it was discovered only on a microscopic examination and seemed too mild of a condition to have killed a sturdy toddler. You know, and we were stumped, Dr. Oram admitted. We 
him and his the person that he works with, we both thought that this child could have been smothered. But because of the pneumonia, we knew this wasn't a case we could take to court. Because, the, you know, the defense would argue that the pneumonia caused Michael's death and we could not find enough evidence to prove it didn't. And that's why this case came to an end. As soon as we found pneumonia, we knew we could not go any further. Yeah, little bit of pneumonia, and they knew they couldn't take it to court because the defense would have been like, it was pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And they, they couldn't prove otherwise. <sighs> I don't know, like, oh, mm-hmm. this one, Michael, it, I want to cry. Yeah. Out of all the other ones, I don't know why, because the death is, you and know, but this part one of it, is just... I think, I mean, they hadn't lived, I mean, they hadn't lived long enough to live a life, which is sad. Yeah. But they hadn't lived long enough to live a life like Michael had. And yeah. the fact that he was adopted. Yeah. You know, like when you give your child up for like adoption, you're assuming. And all the neighbors loved it, you know. It, and he had he had fallen down. He was clearly in pain that she just ignored. You know, so he suffered yeah. like with headaches and, and just that's, pain and that's up one until of the that point. That, um, like that shit sucks. That's one of those things that when she admits later on to have smothered um her tammy lynn which is gonna be the last one and then two of the other ones and not any of the other ones it's because uh they reason it's because the other ones had suffered longer and she didn't want her husband to know because her husband was very attached to all the children and she didn't want him mad at her so she had to come up with something else and she didn't want to admit the name because they suffered longer. Yeah, because like, um, because she had tried to suffocate them, and they, oh, were, they were revived, revived, and then they were on life support a longer time, and then you know the first two, the two and a half year old and the four they and a half year old, older. they were older, and then Michael, you know, and uh-huh. the only uh, the other two were ones that um, they didn't suffer. Nate, it was Nathan and I think it was Nathan and Joseph. I have to look now. This, yeah. is, this is how many there are. Like, I can't even keep track anymore. It's ridiculous. Uh, um, Jonathan. Jonathan and uh, Nathan, I believe. Or no, John. No. I'd have to look it up again. That's the problem. But there was two of them that, um, I mean, she was able to just. It could have been prevented. Yeah. Like, but the problem is, like, they just. When they're that little, I mean, and I'll get into that more. I'll get into that more here. Okay. So anyway, since there was that pneumonia, they said this must have been a relief to Mary Beth because she must have known that social services doubted her story of Michael's fall downstairs and suspected her of mistreating him. And she must have had a good idea of what some of the nurses and doctors at St. Clair's were thinking. And after her years of faith in St. Clair's, so that's where she always went, she had now begun to feel that she needed to avoid this hospital as much as she avoided Ellis, the other hospital. Hmm. Um, unexpectedly, she was relieved, basically, of any guilt in her life. <sighs> and the, because the most respected pathologist in town had ruled that Michael died of pneumonia and the medical examiner's office accepted his judgment. Even if he had been able to show that Michael had been suffocated, the presence of that small patch of pneumonia at the base of one lung would have discouraged any prosecuting attorney from ever pursuing a charge against her. Mm-hmm. So. They're back to square one. Yes. 
Okay, here we go. Um, so as typical, the Tannings are hurting for money because she's a big spender and Joe doesn't make enough. Mm-hmm. But in the early, early summer of 1984, I don't even think I put when... I'm missing like a page out of my notebook somewhere. So, um, <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, because you <laughs> ding dong. Sorry. Because okay. I have all the notes down. So, Michael passed away March 2nd, 1981. So now we are in summer of 1984. Hey, that's the year I was born. Yeah, so about three years later. Um, an unexpected call from a stranger gave Joe the chance to sell the trailer site. That they had because they had lived in a trailer and had burned down at one point. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, like I've, I've condensed a lot of this. There's a lot more of it in the book, but either way, um, he brought Mary Beth along and to talk about the offer with this person. And the person that was trying to buy it was a businesswoman and was driving around the Dwaynesburg area looking for a place to put her trailer, which is why she wanted to buy the site. Mm-hmm. And um, what am I say? Oh God! She also talked about how she had a job as an office manager of a privately owned school bus company. Mm-hmm. And Mary Beth, uh, in between this time between Michael's passing and right now, Mary Beth actually worked for the ambulance corps, so she was an ambulance driver. How the fuck did that? Okay, like I said, that's uh, that's another big part of the book that, like, I'm like, there's no way I'm gonna be able to cover all this. But that's, right. There's a whole lot of stuff there where she's just talking out of her ass. She winds up stealing like a a CPR dummy doll that's a kid, and that's why she gets fired or let go, and nobody ever finds the doll. Oh wow, fucking weirdo. So anyway, she was talking about how she worked in the ambulance corps and drove an ambulance, and since she was experienced, how would she like to drive a school bus? Oh, so now she's driving a school bus. So Mary Beth jumped at the suggestion. She started working with Dub Transportation in September 1984, three and a half years after Michael's death. And at this point in life, it's like, you're going to be childless because she's 40, around 42 right now. Oh, wow. You know, it's pretty, it's kind of past any childbearing age. Um, One of her assignments was to drive some children to Schenectady Nursery School. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy across like the street one day who she didn't probably notice. And it was Kevin, I don't know, Karpowitz. And he was actually a pediatrician in Schenectady, but he didn't have like the typical appearance of like a doctor with long hair and was kind of hippie looking. But he knew, uh, he was very outspoken about, against child abuse. And he remembered Mary Beth Tinning very well from the time of Jonathan's death at Albany Medical Center. Seeing her at the nursery school where he worked as a consultant was a shock to him. She was obviously pregnant. Oh, fuck. It seemed incredible and it was also horrifying because when this baby was born, neither he nor anybody else would have the authority to do anything to protect the child. Mary Beth herself seemed to have like mixed feelings about becoming pregnant right now because she's 42. Right, you're old woman, bitch. Which is, first of all, like that's already kind of like a risky thing. Yeah, I mean, she's not an old woman. And but. later on in the book, like, she has an affair. And so, like, Joe might not even be the father. She's, but um, they're not able to, like, they're not able to um, prove that. Because it doesn't come out until after, yeah, afterwards. Sorry, that wasn't taking um, away what you were talking about. Somebody no. fucking else wanted to sleep with her? Uh, she, I, uh, <gasps> you know, it's in the book. 
Right. I don't know how she wild or what. Anyway, she's just a manipulative little yeah. fuck nugget. But she waited until her fifth month before calling her obstetrician office for her first medical appointment about mm. being pregnant. Yeah. And she was weepy and nervous. And one visit, uh. she clung to the nurse sobbing and confided that she was very, very scared. Oh, the nurse assumed day. that this was because of her age and the fact that her previous babies had died. Right. Because you're a fucking whore. Yeah. As far as Mary Beth's own health was concerned, there was one or two minor problems, but essentially she was fine. Because she obviously was. she, she that's, that's the only thing she's good at being pregnant. Okay, but oh. um, she also when she confided in her other sister-in-law Carol that she was pregnant, mm-hmm. Carol literally told her, "Don't you dare let anything happen to this one." <laughs> so. Once again, she was kind of giving double messages because she was acting as though she was scared of having a baby when, in fact, she was more scared of what people would think of her. Mm-hmm. But irregardless, negative attention or positive attention, it didn't matter to Mary Beth. She was getting She it. was getting attention. Like, she was getting attention. She wanted to have another child. In her mind, a baby was an extension of herself. <laughs> and when the infant was admired, it was her who was getting admired. Who, who got a revel in it. Like a narcissist. Yeah. Like, a, oh, you like the baby? That's an extension of me. I birthed it. Oh, mm-hmm. That's my attention now. Mm. <sighs> so for almost four months after Tammy Lynn was born, everything did seem to be working out. Mary Beth's pregnancy and labor were normal, and her baby was checked out of the hospital in perfect health. Because of the family history, Mary Beth's new pediatrician, Dr. Bradley Ford, recommended the use of an apnea monitor again. So she knows fucking CPR. Yep, which would sound an alarm if there was a pause in the breathing or heartbeat. Mary Beth turned him down, stating that she did not think a monitor was necessary. (laughs) She told her neighbor, Cynthia, that she'd had monitors for two of her babies, but they didn't work. Even though she said one of them went off one time. Oh, right. But she was conscientious about taking Tammy Lynn in for routine checkups because she's a good mother that way, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, now, like I said, she's got this new neighbor named Cynthia, who's also pregnant at the same time. They had their babies, like, right about the same time. Oh, wow. And so, like, um, she had this daily habit of visiting Cynthia with her, like, giving birth just weeks, like, after Mary Beth. Mm -hmm. And her other neighbor, Sue, saw less and less of Mary Beth. And there were excuses for invitations, and Tammy Lynn was asleep, and maybe another time, and... And this and not, and they used to be really close. But the thing is, like, the Tinians themselves seem to only be able to maintain a close friendship with, like, one couple or one person at a time. Mm. So, like, she, they, can't, share she can't, yeah, she can't do, she couldn't do it for some reason. Like, because she wanted all the attention or, or something. I don't even know. Because, or maybe she couldn't keep her life straight. So, if she only had one friend, then that was easy. Right. Meanwhile, Wits, remember the first pediatrician who was like oh my gosh she's pregnant yeah and mary beth's pediatrician still continued to try to get mary beth to use an apnea monitor and she still refused he warned the er and nurses there so when tammy lynn was brought in lifeless the hospital authorities were suspicious enough to file a formal complaint with social services as did car Kaparitz. he also informed the district attorney's office at the same time that an investigator showed up there. 
And when the obituary notice was published in the following morning's Schenectady Gazette, the staff that manned the child abuse hotline received call after call after call. So Tammy Lynn lived four months. She was born on August 22nd, 1985, and passed away December 20th, 1985. So they look really close into this one, though. Tammy Lynn's death was less complicated, and for the first time, it is not considered isolated. Like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, hmm. now they're going to really look into it, especially after Michael. Right. The medical histories of all the teenage children were reviewed as an entirety. So this is the first time that they haven't done like an autopsy just looking at that one child. Because remember before like an autopsy was performed, but they didn't have the history of the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. Now they have the history of all the rest of the children. Right. So at. you get to look at all yes. the dots. And it's old. we have better technology. Mm -hmm. It's a little point. bit better. They're starting to learn some more stuff. Um, looking at the various cases of death, um, they were certified as the Ray's syndrome cardiopulmonary arrest, acute pulmonary edema, sudden infant death syndrome, and even Michael's pneumonia. Hmm. And one could hypothesize that all the tinning children, except Jennifer, because there was the, the first one that died, because she had that, um, God, I can't think of the word. She had like the brain abscesses. Oh, and yeah, stuff. yeah. Um, so that one was the only one that, natural causes type of a thing so other than jennifer could have been suffocated seven of the eight earlier diagnoses were either inadequate or questionable at this time so the label of ray's syndrome which was attached to barbara and then joseph mm -hmm. largely on the basis of mary best reports that they had convulsions and stuff before they died mm -hmm. and looking back over the records dr Oram noted that no one but mary best saw these convulsions she's always alone mm -hmm. if indeed they had happened at all and they could have been a reaction to a smothering attempt mm -hmm. so while it might be fairly simple to smother an infant he knew it would be very nasty business to suffer a child suffocate a child of almost five years old mm -hmm. they would have fought back obviously right and also like if there was like convulsions there would be some kind of brain i don't know if they had that like that kind of thing back then right like, that's the thing um the seven other Tinian children, Joseph, Timothy, Nathan, Mary Frances, Jonathan, Michael, and Tammy Lynn, might have also been suffocated. All their diagnosis left room for doubt. And some of their bodies had not even been autopsied because, I mean, until a certain point, there wasn't a need for it. Um, Jennifer was the only one that had obviously died from natural causes because she had the multiple brain abscesses. Right. And her death was the first of nine, which, again, we talked about, I think, in, like, the second episode was, like, the catalyst. Yeah. Like, that kind of seemed to set it all off. And then came the question of how it happened again. So this gets into, like, how did Tammy Lynn die? So in their apartment, their master bedroom was at the very rear end of the apartment. And Tammy Lynn's crib was kept in a windowed alcove about seven feet by ten feet off the living room. So literally the very farthest away from their bedroom oh well that's yep okay so in this long narrow layout of the tinning home so the two sleeping places were as far apart as they could possibly get as opposed to like um, making there was a little room close to like the parents bedroom that most people would use as the nursery they didn't use it as that they put her way over here because joe had stuff in the closet 
Oh, the fuck ever. So at nighttime, this put Tammy Lynn virtually out of earshot of her parents. And she did not want that apnea monitor. Since several of their babies were reported to have died in their cribs without symptoms or warning, this was curious. Especially of a middle-aged couple who had gone through this before. Right. It's because she's confident because she knows nothing happened to her children. Nope. She knows they sleep perfectly fine yeah. and everything is okay. And as long as she's far, it's far away from the bedroom so Joe doesn't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Fucking comeback. Yeah. Yep, and this will tell you exactly what she did, because, I mean, she did, yeah. So when Tammy Lynn appeared to have settled in for the night, Mary Beth stretched out on her side of the double bed and dozed until Joe arrived home shortly after 11 p.m. They talked for a few minutes, and then he got into bed and fell asleep. There have, um, what do I say? He had just been out bowling, and usually after he bowled with his league, he had a couple of drinks before he came home. So he was knocked out, like, you know, men knock out anyway, right, when they hit Hello. Yeah, they do look yes. Like they just, I mean, they fall asleep anyway, but if he has a couple drinks in him, then he's really asleep. He's out. He's out. And this could explain why he fell asleep so quickly and slept so soundly in the next hour or so. It is at this point with Joe oblivious that Mary Beth's account of the events takes off in two different directions. As per usual, because she can't fucking she remember can't her ass one, from well, her head. It's just because she likes to make up stories. She cannot just have one consistent telling. Yeah. She can't keep it. Yeah. She can't keep it straight. So in the version she told Joe, um, Cynthia, the neighbor, her relatives and other neighbors, Joe was tossing and turning in bed so much that she couldn't sleep. So she got up, went into the living room and lay on the sofa, watched television. After a while, she felt sleepy to return to bed. But before doing so, she stopped by the alcove to check on the baby. She was lying on her stomach, tangled in the blanket. It's like a four-month-old baby. They don't get tangled out in blankets. No, they don't. And you shouldn't even have a blanket. They might not know that I can, but irregardless. No. Mary Beth turned her over, noticed there was a spot of blood on her sheet. Blood? Apparently. And Tammy Lynn was very still and not breathing. So this is what she's telling, like, everybody but first, it. right? Mary Beth recounted how in a profound state of shock she was in. She had screamed for her husband called for an ambulance, telephoned Cynthia, who lived next door, and while waiting for help, tried to revive her baby by doing CPR. She had learned a few years earlier as a volunteer ambulance driver. Not and, like and with her other baby. Oh my fucking, now you want to yeah. do CPR. But it was too late. That didn't matter. It was too late anyway. What the fuck did the blood come into play? Dude? I don't even know. They never really, they never really say about that. But Mary Beth told another version of her story too. Tearfully. When she was questioned by police seven oh. weeks later. Mm-hmm. This was the version which a jury of her peers would hear. In this account, Mary Beth was in bed beside her sleeping husband, just dozing off when she heard Tammy Lynn crying. She got up, went to the other end of the apartment, and did what she could to quiet the baby. But nothing seemed to work. She began comparing herself and her baby to others. No one else's babies cried. They weren't fussy. Her baby cried all the time. She must be doing something wrong. She must be a bad mother. At some point, between midnight and 1 a.m., she went back into her bedroom, saw that Joe was still asleep, removed her own pillow from the bed, and took it to Tammy Lynn's crib. She put the pillow over her daughter's face and held it there long enough to ensure that Tammy Lynn would never cry again. I didn't mean to hurt her, 
I just wanted to fucking kill her. No, she said, I didn't mean to hurt her, she told the police. I just wanted her to stop crying. Mary Beth did not panic until later. First, she had to have taken time to think of a story. Right. And then she put her pillow on the end of the sofa so it looked like she was laying down there, like she tells Joe, and then screamed for Joe. After calling Cynthia, who rushed over, and when she saw Tammy Lynn, she immediately saw that she was limp and lifeless, and her skin was a cyanosed purple. That baby was dead for a while then. Indicating lack of oxygen, not the grayish shade Mary Beth later described. She could find no respiration, no pulse, and saw no marks on the baby's flesh. Cynthia put her hand under there and tried and started doing CPR because Cynthia was a nurse, oh. you know, and so she started doing CPR on this baby too. And, and Mary Beth told her an ambulance was on the way across the street. Still, oh my fucking god! She also said she had tried CPR, but there had been no response from the baby. Cynthia was appalled at this because anyone who learns a technique of CPR like Mary Beth knows that you continue doing it until paramedics arrive. You don't stop. No. Irregardless, you don't stop. Even if you're not getting a response, you do not stop until help arrives. Until you can be relieved. And she would have been taught that working as an ambulance driver. Yeah. And she said she knew if it had been a crisis with her own baby, she would have gone on doing CPR until every last scrap of her energy was gone. And even then, if she was exhausted, she would have forced herself to continue doing it while her husband was outside waving down the ambulance right but like mary beth is still inside the apartment pacing around and wringing her hands while joe stood there shaking his head like oh great mary beth had somehow pulled on slacks and joe was dressed i don't know yeah and um maybe joe fell asleep with his clothes on i don't know i don't know I don't know. There was a delay in the ambulance arrival, either because Mary Beth had given the wrong number for her house or because someone on the medical team made a mistake. Either way, why was one of Joe or Mary Beth not outside waving them down so they wouldn't have to look for the house number in the dark? Right. Like any normal person would do. Joe is probably like, the baby's already dead. Like, he probably has been through this routine. But he just... Yeah. He's like, yep, there's no one. Ambulance finally arrived. Paramedics took over the resuscitation attempts. Um, if, and for Cynthia, like since she just kind of met Mary Beth, I don't think at this time she realized how many babies had actually died. Like Mary Beth never really like when she meets somebody, she'll she, say like a couple, but like she'll never give like the full extent of how many. Yeah. And so Cynthia is automatically thinking like, well, this poor lady. This, I mean, like this is crib death. Oh my gosh, this could have been my own child. Like I mean, she is torn up inside. You know that you put them down to sleep and they don't wake up anymore. You know. And, um, again, Mary Beth had to have somebody go to the hospital with her mm-hmm. and she didn't really want to go to the hospital. They didn't really want to go to the hospital to face the inevitable. Right. Um, but it was impossible to refuse. Right. You know, and she wondered why Mary Beth and Joe couldn't support each other. Right. Without putting her through the agony of it too, mm-hmm. because they've never been able to do that. Never. Ever. No. And it was barely a five minute drive from the Mich- Michigan Avenue to St. Clair's hospital. Cause St. Clair's hospital was on Michigan Avenue and to their apartment on McClellan street. It was barely a five minute drive. 
when Cynthia and Joe walked into the emergency room, because Mary Beth went in the ambulance and then Joe and Cynthia drove in his truck, mm-hmm. um, Mary Beth was calmly giving information to the uh, admissions desk. Calm. That was calm. Did not cry. Joe was quiet. No reactions. No crying. None at all. None. So they walk in the like. Regular old damn normal day. Right. He's just routine cold here. Yeah. Like, oh, another baby. Yeah. Uh, Tammy Lynn was pronounced deceased on December 20th, 1985 at four months old. So at her autopsy, Dr. Oram noted that she was well-nourished, a little taller and heavier than average with nothing obviously wrong except for severe diaper rash. This was another thing, right? Like she has this baby and like Cynthia and her, you know, they had babies at the same time. And like Cynthia was kind of like, um, how do you not know how to treat diaper rash? You've had a few kids before this. Like it was like Mary Beth was like a new mother somehow or something. Mm-hmm. Like, but he said she had, he had severe, she had severe diaper rash and it was so bad that at first he kind of considered septicemia, which is a, a blood poisoning. Cause like when you, when you get septicemia, yeah, your blood basically becomes toxic to you. But it wasn't as a possible cause of death because um, he said that the baby looked as though she had not been changed often enough. And as if the resulting diaper rash had been treated with a whole glue pot of desitin, causing the skin to just fester underneath. Oh, my God. So she was not taking care of this baby. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like. Like she hadn't had eight babies before. Right. Had that issue. I don't even know. Like, I think she was just losing it completely at this time. Yeah, that was probably a baby that was not her husband's. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too. But he found no evidence of septicemia, so that was not the cause of death. With Dr. Sim, he examined the body minutely. Neither of them saw an obvious cause of death. They looked very carefully at the baby's air passages gastrointestinal tract for possible obstructions. They made the necessary incisions to examine organs, muscles, bones, brain. They took blood and tissue samples um, to examine for viral or bacterial studies. They arranged for bowel studies, chromosomal studies for, you know, in case there is a genetic anomaly, toxicological studies to make sure toxicology studies to find if there was any trace of poison. They covered every test known to man, Oram commented. We even split samples and sent some to a lab in Pennsylvania in order to compare its results with those of the lab technicians at St. Clair. So they sent different places so they could double check it. This autopsy on this little four-month-old, it took two hours for them to do it because they were being super thorough with this one because there's so much suspicion. And then at the same two, same sample of everything, not on different days, but the same yep. sample went to, so they can't say, oh, well, that was because that was done on yeah, this day or, or, this was, or on it was that tainted day. wrong or you had faulty equipment or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during this autopsy, Orm also checked the clear, okay, the clear fluid in the eyeballs, which is called the vitreous humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this can be used to kind of determine your time of death, apparently. Okay. Because what happens is um, it says there's, pota- there's potassium in the cells that line your eye. Mm-hmm. And when the person is alive, the potassium is, is locked kind of behind your eyes. But once you die and there's nothing there, the potassium begins to enter that vitreous humor. So the, the, the fluid in your eyes. 
And um, therefore, the longer a person is deceased, the more potassium is in there. Okay. And Tammy Lynn, the potassium indicated she had been deceased two hours earlier than Mary Beth reported. Oram said, I think Tammy Lynn died at about 10 p.m., not midnight, when her mother sounded the alarm, which would explain the cyanosis color, too. Although his suspicions were aroused, obviously, he was still reluctant to reach a diagnosis. He was not an expert in sudden infant death syndrome, and some of Tammy Lynn's autopsy findings puzzled him. So he telephoned a former colleague, Dr. J. Bruce Beckwith, chairman of the Department of Pathology at the Children's Hospital in Denver and a professor of pathology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Quote, it was one of the longest telephone conversations I have ever had or am related. I told him the whole story from beginning to end. I had known him since 1964 when he and I did our boards together in pathology. At that time, SIDS was new and he was interested, this doctor he's talking to. So over the next 20 years, he became one of the country's leading experts on it, which is why he consulted with this dude. Oh, nice. To be like, okay, this is what's happening. Is this what this is? Right. When I called him about Tammy Lynn Tinning, I was still a little hung up on the ammonia level. Because remember that whole ammonia level thing? And whether this might mean some abnormalities in the urea cycle. Although they kind of like not believe that because they would have been born sickly and all that. But he was still he was still like, maybe, who knows? Right. I described to him all the autopsy findings and also told him about the things I didn't find. In SIDS, you usually get tiny hemorrhages in the face and eyes, but those were not present in Tammy Lynn. I talked about the hemorrhages of the stomach, and he explained that those probably happened during resuscitation attempts. Um, other than that, he said very little until I finished. Then he remarked, quote, there's only one explanation for all this, and it has to be smothering. Later, Dr. Beckwith commented, quote, the logic is pretty straight. And this is going to be a long quote, you guys, just so you know. And I have to quote it word for word because it's pretty important. Yeah. The logic is pretty straightforward. I believe very firmly that SIDS is rarely, if ever, a familiar. familial, Familiar? Yeah, like, like a family problem. Familial okay. problem. There have been some reported instances of several cases in a family, but most of them can be explained by genetic diseases, which may resemble SIDS but which in fact are quite different. Two out of every thousand babies dies, die of SIDS, which means cases in a family are very small indeed. Of the 1,200 SIDS cases I have dealt with, 1,200 SIDS cases that this guy has dealt with, only seven were the second instance in a family. Five of those were later explained as inher inherited diseases, which we failed to identify at first. That leads to the conclusion that SIDS is non-familial. It also has distinct features. It is very rare the first month of life and uncommon after six months. Some of your babies died after six months. Mm -hmm. Most cases happen between the ages of two and three months, none after a year. Dr. Oram was describing something with an age distribution curve, which did not fit the known facts of SIDS. If it was not SIDS he was dealing with, the other possibility was a hereditary disease. There are two kinds of genetic diseases. Dominant, the kind which can carry a 50% risk and recessive. If it is dominant, you will see the abnormalities in a parent. So both tinning parents were healthy, so it would have to be a recessive gene. 
in which case the highest risk of a child inheriting the disease is not one in two, but one in four. But in the Tinning family, all the babies died, including an adopted child. The statistical possibility of this happening to every child in a family of this size is so small that one can exclude it. Therefore, this was most unlikely to be a genetic disease. It was also totally inconsistent with SIDS. The circumstances of the deaths were so varied and covered such an age range that they simply could not be SIDS. Also, a SIDS death is hardly ever observed. It happens during sleep and is discovered later. For a parent to see a baby die of SIDS is very unusual. To see two babies die of it is unthinkable. Remember, she caught two of them. Mm-hmm. And it's... It, He's saying, like, doesn't happen. That left only one possibility, that these children were murdered. And as I said to Dr. Oram, the question was not whether the mother did it, but how she did it. He asked me whether you could tell the difference between suffocation and SIDS. My response was that if you put a pillow over an infant's face, you can imitate SIDS. It is, however, an imperfect imitation. There is a characteristic finding in SIDS of small pinpoint hemorrhages in the face and chest, which can only be produced by obstructing the airway at the end of a breath. In 85% of all SIDS deaths, that happens. But if you suffocate a child with a pillow, you will obstruct the airway at random points of the respiratory cycle. So not at the end of the breath, it's during it. Which means that very few babies who die of suffocation will show these hemorrhages. This baby, whom Dr. Oram described, did not show those hemorrhages, basically, nor did any of the others in the family whose records he had, and that strengthened the case for suffocation. Oram had never, okay, and this is no longer a quote, so end quote. Oram had never seen a suffocated baby before. So that's another thing. I mean, these doctors have never seen a suffocated baby. Like, that's an unheard of thing. Right. Right. It's, it's, what do you do? So the lack of these signs, those, those, those hemorrhaging signs, they puzzled him because he was like, I, I don't know. Right. Um, but basically, like, if a baby is suffocated with a pillow, the pressure exerted on the outside is equalized by the pressure on the inside. And therefore, it doesn't cause this hemorrhaging okay. in babies. So concluding that the absence of okay. these hemorrhaging marks is actually more suspicious than if they were there. I gotcha. Keep in mind, keep in mind, just keep in mind this too, that up until this period of time in the medical world, these things were not known. And therefore, it was, of course, reasonable and of no one's fault that it was missed. Right. That's the other thing. Like, you have to keep in mind that this is like late 70s, you know, beginning of the 80s, they didn't know this stuff. So it's not like it was a doctor's fault for missing this. They, they just, they, they didn't, didn't teach know. it in medical school. Yeah. It wasn't something They didn't that. know enough about any of this yet to be able to be like, this is, mis they're missing these signs. It's got to be something else. Right. You know, this doesn't fit the SIDS pattern. This doesn't fit this pattern. That type of a thing. Plus, and moms didn't do shit like that. So you didn't well, think and about that's, that. And that's just it too. Like he's never seen a baby that's been suffocated. Like, not a SIDS death, but like an actual suffocation. So he didn't know what to look for, you know, and it's different than with like a human one. Cause, cause he said, you know, he's seen like adults and stuff who've been suffocated, but you have that particular hemorrhaging. 
Yeah. You know, because that's just, that's what happens. They're fighting. There's a whole lot of friction going on. Exactly. But with an infant, especially if they're like sleeping, you're not going to have that. You're not going to have those struggles. So, um, Mary Beth, after all of this, because they were already starting to investigate her. She didn't know it quite yet, but they were. Yeah. So there was stuff being done. And like, you'll sometimes hear that like nothing was ever open. There weren't any cases, nobody, but they had been, but they were waiting for the right moment. Like they were waiting for some actual concrete evidence. Right. They wanted to be sure. Yeah. Because otherwise uh, no prosecutor is going to prosecute them. Mm -mm. So Mary Beth Tinning was arrested on February 4th, 1986. I know. Right. And during uh, interrogations, she confessed to the suffocation of Tammy Lynn, Nathan, and Jonathan. I smeared my makeup. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Because I was going to, like, wipe my fucking shits, and then I was like, oh, fuck. But she denied having anything to do with any of the other deaths, which is what I explained to you earlier. Yeah. She didn't want Joe to get mad at her. She later claimed, however, that she was coerced, 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 into um, the last two confessions, but no one believed it. <laughs> right. Okay. And now, now we're getting to the part um, where I'm not going to go in depth into this trial because she goes to trial, obviously, because that's a whole nother like four or five parter if you really wanted to get into it because there's a whole lot that goes into that. Um, and there's a lot of information that is given during this part and i don't want to take away all the work that the author did when writing this book and i feel the most important part of this case is the victims themselves anyway so i'm gonna kind of like condense this version like a lot because it's like a 200 page condensed right (laughs) so um mary beth wound up at first only being charged with the death of tammy lynn which she pled not guilty to of course uh because the prosecutor planned to uh, try each of the other baby's death later on mm-hmm. instead of all at once. Because if you thing. get acquitted for one, then you get acquitted for them all. Yep. So, um, but her confessions to the deaths of Nathan and Jonathan were actually used as evidence in the case of Tammy Lynn um, to show the intent to harm more than one. Yeah. More than one of her children, basically. Her trial began on June 22nd, 1987. It was up to the jury to decide if she was guilty. And if so, because I think they would have considered, it was considered like second degree murder for some reason, but anyway, if so, there were two different alternate charges that the jury had to base it on, and they had to base it on one of them. And so the jurors, while deliberating, did have to ask, like, again, like what the difference was between the first and second count. Because they weren't allowed to take notes back then. Okay. Because they needed, like, they wanted the jury to be completely focused on what was happening. I gotcha. And so the judge said that the first, if they decided that she was guilty and they went with, like, first count of murder or something like that. It's not first degree murder, but it's, like, there's two different counts with, like, second degree murder. So the first count, would it would have to be determined beyond a reasonable doubt that Mary Beth caused Tammy Lynn's death by smothering her with a pillow, fully intending to kill her. Quote, it is not necessary to find that the intent to kill was in the mind of the defendant for some time, so not premeditated, before the death. It is sufficient to show that it was in her mind when she did it. So it's like he's saying, like, for the first count, you know, 
fully expecting to kill her. Like that was her plan. Yep. She woke up in the morning and said, when he comes home, he's going to crash out. I'm going to fucking kill this yeah. baby. And the second one was a little bit more complicated because this one is for the depraved indifference to human life. It was necessary then to show that Mary Beth deliberately put her daughter's life in jeopardy in circumstances that were brutal and inhumane. The diaper rash. And just suffocating her. It's brutal and inhumane. The risk to life must be of such a nature that the disregard thereof constitutes a gross deviation from normal conduct. So the normal person's conduct. For it to be reckless, she must know that a risk of death exists, and she must disregard that risk. Yeah. So basically, that charge is harsher. Not harsher, but it's more severe. Even though both of those counts would carry the same sentencing time. And they're basically the same thing, because both of them would have been premeditated. In a certain way, but like the second one is like she wanted to cause grievous bodily Right, like she was resentful of this exactly. baby, and she wanted exactly. Ah. I gotta watch this really quick. See what we're about to run. just never again. Okay, so basically, like I said, the the second count is actually considered to be more severe of a crime, even though both counts have the same sentencing time. Right, uh, deliberations took three days. So on July 17th, 1987, they reached a verdict. The foreman was asked the verdict on the charge of, like, that first count. Not guilty. Paul Callahan, her defense attorney, and Mary Beth exchanged smiles. They had assumed that if there was a conviction, it would be on the first charge. Mary Beth relaxed visibly. Judge Mm -hmm. Harrigan asked about the charge of second. The foreman hesitated for an instant because this was not an easy decision necessarily for the jury. And that's part of it that I'm not getting into that. If you want to read the book, like it really goes into their, their talking back and forth. But anyway, yeah. Foreman hesitated for an instant, then said guilty. So the more severe one, Mary best face reddened. She bowed her head and began to sob quietly. Like Aww. she did not see this fucking coming. No minutes later, it was all over. Barney Waldron, the sheriff, led her across the covered bridge from the courtroom to the cells of the county jail. She went quietly, tears still streaming down her face. It's funny because she didn't cry when her children (laughs) died after she killed them, but she cries when she is caught. Right. And now she understands that, like, oh, shit. Right. I'm in trouble. You, she went all that time without getting in trouble. So she just really thought she was scot free. Like nobody was not, gonna. Not, but she not necessarily scot. But she thought she was gonna get you know, a slap on the wrist or something. Yeah, pretty much. Eleven weeks later, she faced sentencing. Now, um, it said in recent years, New York state judges had been kind of restricted by the legislature's sentencing statute, which mandated the sentences for major crimes. A first-time offender found guilty of murder in the second degree could not be given fewer than 15 years to life imprisonment or more than 25 years to life. So since she was a first-time offender, you know. But. There was fucking nine of them. But Judge Harrigan's sentence was almost as much of a shock to her as the jury's verdicts. I guarantee she was like, oh, I'll get 15 years or whatever. 20 years to life to be spent in the state's prison for women at Bedford Hill. So he maxed her out. Yeah. I mean, 25 years life is technically maxing, but 20. Yeah, pretty much. 
Um, it was later decided not to prosecute her on the other two deaths due to the fact that even if she was found guilty, it would only add a maximum of like 10 years to her current sentence and the money and the cost of it would be unnecessary. Right. Everybody knew she was guilty. It was right. Um, she tried to appeal. It was denied. Good. Um, and and the other part of this too is, is there's also this mental health aspect that the book kind of goes yeah the Munchauser in, yeah that, uh, that the book kind of goes into and I'm not gonna really touch upon that a whole lot either because that could be a whole another episode in, in and of itself so feel free to like do that research on on your own if you want to if you want to find out because I mean obviously something was going on in her head yeah there was something going on there but like some of um the different theories or whatever they they had was uh, postpartum psychosis. Uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy. I agree. And then like a bipolar with psychosis and postpartum depression. Now, in my opinion, I think a lot of it was that Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Yeah. Um, because after Jennifer, the very first one died and she got all that attention, mm-hmm. she was like, and, and she'd always been so average, right? And forgettable. And nobody, she, nobody, nobody paid, her any, paid mind. any attention to her. And all of a sudden she had all this attention. Yeah. And she knew exactly how to get it from then on. Yeah. So um, there's some like like people who say like she's one of the very first like cases of Munchausen. It could be one of the first cases of Munchausen syndrome by proxy because it was back then that they were just starting to kind of like understand that that was a thing. Right. So that I mean, like I said, there's there's different things that it could have been. They never really looked that much into it. It's like psychiatric exams were never done with her so nothing was ever diagnosed right like i said you guys can have your like do your own opinions research your own on that because this is this is this has gone on long enough anyway so after being denied parole six times (laughs) bitch yeah you're not gonna be happy about this one uh mary beth tinning was released on parole on august 21st 2018 at the age of 76, after serving 31 years. Oh, my so gosh. She actually served 11 more years. Uh, this is what's really bad. Her husband, Joe, mm-hmm. who had supported her throughout her imprisonment, was present for her release. No. He stood by her the whole time and said that she would never have done that to their children. As part of her release, Tinine was ordered to remain under parole supervision for the rest of her life. She still they still live in schenectady there she's still alive today yes she has a curfew and must attend domestic violence counseling but she's still alive today the last i read like i looked it up and as far as everything i look at she is still alive today and they still live in schenectady they went back to their home where everybody knows and, and i think like there's um they i couldn't find out for sure but i think that they're still in the same apartment the, the last, the last baby. one died. Yeah. Like, I, like, oh my God. Like, okay, lady, you're bad enough the way it is, but why would you still want to live in that place when you already were so much afraid of what people thought about you? At least she's too old to have kids. I hope, like, I wonder, you know how sex offenders have to have registration? I hope that there's something on her fucking door so the neighbors don't say, hey, will you take care of my kid? There was actually, um, right after her her, uh, Tammy Lynn had passed, uh, there was actually a neighbor who didn't know about all the other ones yet. And um, Mary Beth was actually watching her baby. 
And once like somebody told her and she realized it, like she had to hurry home because she's like, holy shit, like, ah, like that freaking out, you know, type of a thing. God. Yeah. But I mean, there's so, obviously she's a, a, she's a convicted murderer. It's not like that she's going to be able to be around kids. I, I have a feeling like any kind of crime against children, you're not allowed to be around children. Right. Okay. So now get this one, right? So you said, he said that she would have never done that to her kids. Yeah. But previously, he had said, I was scared for my life. Yeah, like, that he, I didn't say anything. He's kind of wishy-washy like that. Like, he was cleared of, like, all wrongdoing in it. But he stood by her this entire time. Like I said, he has no spine. He's no balls. No balls, Joe. In 30 years, he couldn't have found somebody else. Like, what kind of, like, manipulated manipulation little hold does he have on her or is that trauma bonding i mean it's more trauma for him than her obviously i know but you would think after 30 fucking years like space away but obviously not because he was more um connected to all these kids than she ever was yeah they were just a means to an end for her right a means for her to get the attention like she ripped him away. Okay, so you know how like the trauma bonding, you reel him in, just be a dick, and you reel him. I wonder if she reeled him back in with these with babies. Every baby, yeah. And then this is what I could do to you. I could take him away from you because that was something that he connected and he maybe and he bought. Oh my fucking god! Yeah. There's another theory out there, people. Right? Yeah, and like I said, if you guys do happen to like look into it more, if you do happen to read the book that I got like all my information from, from cradle to grave, like it goes into like the last baby. Um, a guy actually comes forward and claims that that is his child. Oh shit! Because they had an affair. And then she wound up pregnant, and at first he didn't really believe her, but then when the baby was born, like, just how the baby looked and the hair color and different things, when he compared her picture with, like, his children, like, very similar. However, when he went to, like, after she was killed, and he found out about it, like, he went to, like, the detectives and was like, I'm pretty sure this was my kid, because that would really rule out genetic whatever. But since... She was already passed away. They couldn't get a live blood sample to uh-huh. compare it DNA wise. And back then, they didn't have a whole lot of that kind of stuff. All they could really compare was like blood type, right? Which it, it didn't prove one way or the other. But there's a chance that the last baby wasn't even Joe's. Well, I mean, they could do that now, though. They can go back to samples and look at dot 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 dot. I mean, they might, but like, who's gonna really go and do that right I mean, now? She was convicted, so yeah. You know, it's one of those things. Well, I mean, just to know if it was his or not. Now I want to know, like, did you ever? Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, and right. I think one of the reasons that they were even looking into it is because they wanted to uh, rule even, out, like, really, like, hammer in the fact that this is not genetic. Right. You know, this is definitely not genetic because this would have been two kids now that yeah, all of a sudden died. And who knows, maybe with Tammy Lynn, like, it was one of those things. Like, she seemed really nervous with, with the last baby. And maybe it was because it wasn't Joe's. And mm-hmm. she was worried one day he would find out. Because the baby was going to come out looking not like the other yeah, ones. Yeah, I mean, not that it really matters because, like, he would have loved there was car. eight of them before that yeah. she didn't have a problem knocking off. And, and, and Joe loved any of those kids. Like, the foster girl that, you know, she got rid of once she was pregnant. You know, Michael, like, he wouldn't have cared. I think he probably liked the kids also because... 
like the house wasn't just him and her. I think now when I think, okay, you have Munchauser syndrome. Yes. But I think a lot of it had to do with the control thing with controlling him, honestly, because with that trauma bonding, like you take away what's important, you know, you love them and you love them and you give them and then you take what's most important to that person Mm -hmm. away. And he loved these kids and she fucking took them away. What a psychotic bitch. And it might've been, it might've been a little of both Both, because a lot of it was the fact that she got that. Yes. I think it was both, not just one. And then, and then the other part that, you know, that goes into like the mental health and the psychological part is her thinking after Jennifer, the very first one step, that she was not a good mother. She couldn't do anything right. Her babies cried all the time and she was just terrible and they'd be better off without her, you know, and maybe, and that's where that postpartum psychosis might have come in. She might have thought, I'm, I'm doing what's right for them by, by whatever. Mm-hmm. And she's a lot older at this point, you know, and she couldn't handle the crying. I, it just sucks for that kid because it's such a bad diaper rash. Why didn't yeah. anybody, maybe that's why she wasn't hanging well, out with her, the other her, no, people. No, her neighbor Cynthia actually saw the diaper rash and she was like, um, you put this desitin on there. Well, then she started doing that, but she gobbed it on there. Yeah, she wasn't like baby. Like, I'm not even sure, but it's just like I said, and that could have been. Who knows? Like so I said, there's a lot of like psychological stuff, obviously, that's going to go into this. You yeah, don't kill nine, nine kids, supposedly. I, I, sh- I should keep saying supposedly because there is, is. no absolute proof she's only been convicted of one and then jennifer who is a natural one but you don't do that without having something wrong messed up you. in your noggin like yeah. i mean especially when it, it wasn't constant abuse with them either it was just like sudden because otherwise they were well fed they were bathed they were well clothed she went to all the appointments yeah, and it was premeditated in some kind of way because it was always four months. Well, not always, but because um, I think for the most part, like see, four of them it? were. Because Barbara was the one that lived the longest, yeah. and she was four and a half. Uh, Joseph was two years old. Jennifer was, um, that is not correct, 13 days, but 13 months, 13 days. And that was the first three, right? Oh, I had those two mixed up. Um, Jennifer was the very first one right. to pass away. She was 11 days. And then it was Joseph and then Barbara. Right. And then she had Timothy, oh. who was 11 days. Or no, 13 months. Okay. Nathan was five months. Okay. Then Mary Frances was four months. Jonathan was four months. Michael was two and a half years mm-hmm. old. And Tammy Lynn was four months. It was almost like they get they got past like that cute little like baby infant stage when people aren't like ooing and eyeing anymore, mm-hmm. and she needed that attention fix. Mm-hmm. It was like an addiction. Yeah. So like like I said, there's uh, there's different things that go into it, and I think like I said, that's one of the reasons that like this case always like turns your stomach. It does, and at the same time, it's like what. What was going on in her mind that, because, because like you said, like, obviously some of it was premeditated. She avoided going to the hospital sometimes. Mm-hmm. She purposefully brought him back after suffocating them again. She uh, bypassed going straight to the hospital and stopped at Flavorland one time. Like, I don't even know. Like I said, and, and it, part of it, I think, was the loss of Jennifer kind of made her go um, just it I think she just had a total breakdown 
And then she thought she was a terrible mother. So every time they cried, she automatically thought, I'm a bad mother. I'm doing something wrong because they're crying. Right. And I, babies. yep. And I just, without reason, with, I don't know, my gut says to fucking punish her husband. Her pu- husband was probably spending more time with the kids at a certain point. It and was, I, we're I not worrying it. about the mom. Now we're worrying about yeah. the baby. And I don't think she liked or it that. Could, or it could have been because she was a big spender and they thought about money a lot. Every time they had a kid, that takes money. And yeah. Joe was not working enough for her because they didn't have enough money. What's a good way to get more money? Awesome. You get rid of one of the things that's taking the money. Oh, my fucking... This chick, I can't believe they let her out. She should have been one of those stamped, never coming out, uh-huh. bitch. But I think a whole lot of it was just because they could only convict her on one. And she was a first-time offender. And there was those statutes put in place. You know, it's like, I like, I like the laws. They're there for a reason. And I understand that. And, and you have to be meticulous or whatever, because there are people that get convicted, Mm -hmm. right? Like I get it. But then at the same time, I'm like, why do you got to have that law? Why is there got to be a statute for that? Why, why, why? But there's a reason for it. And then too, I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of prisons in general is supposed to be about rehabilitation. rehabilitation. Now there are some people like, let's face it. They cannot be rehabilitated. Like this bitch. That's kind of what somebody said. Like, there's no way she'll be rehabilitated. But they let her out when she's old enough that... Right, but I bet she's healthy as a fucking horse. She's clearly still kicking it. I bet, like, she can do... I bet this woman is... Because this is how it works, right? She's perfectly fucking fine, right? She's not walking around crippled. She could probably run an old person marathon, right? Well, at least Mm -hmm. she can't have any kids. Nope, I hope nobody takes kids around her. Well, I, look, nobody's going to. Are you kidding me right now? I mean, I especially when she lives so. in Schenectady still. She's got to be like a freaking legend. Not a legend, but like everybody has to know who she is. Right, and her husband. Like, I wonder what his family, like, why are you supporting this bitch? I wonder how those sister-in-laws, like, reacted to her well, No, they, home. um, the last, with the last one, like, I mean, both of them just, like, because one of them became really attached to you know, Michael, because you can't help no to Tammy Lynn. I mean, you can't oh. help it. You know, it's a little baby, right? And I mean, uh, even though like they both hoped that like nothing would happen, but they were kind of like I think it was like they already like, knew. waiting, and then when they did find out, it was just devastating to them. Devastating because they could have done something probably in their could, heads. Well, could they well I know it's like but... it's just like that pediatrician said when she, when he saw that she was pregnant again. Like he knew there was nothing he. Doctors, anybody could do was just to help time. that baby because there's, uh, yeah, people are calling CPS, but there's no evidence of child abuse until they're already dead. Mm-hmm. And even then, it was really hard because they had, they didn't have the information right. that we do today. And it's rare. I think the only time like a baby gets taken from the mom after birth is when it has drugs in its system, right? Or when it has, like, obvious signs of abuse. Like- no, I mean popped right out of the belly. Oh, yeah. From in the hospital. And that's what needed to happen. The only way that they were going to be able to save this baby is if, is if, they, if they did that. But she never, she delivered healthy babies also. Mm-hmm. And Perfectly so healthy. she, and, and that's she what really sucks. Mm-hmm. Because they had no reason to, they didn't have concrete reasons to not mm-hmm. let her. Exactly. And that was the thing, because they didn't have evidence that these babies hadn't died of SIDS. Mm-hmm. Until they started learning more information. Like I said, there's suspicions, but there wasn't concrete. Concrete. Right. But I'm glad this one's over. Right. I'm ready to talk to you guys about another case. Yeah. 
irregardless. Yeah. But. Oh, we're doing funny shit now. Yes, huh? we are. We, we we've are. Gotta, we're we're going to lighten this up here at the end. I know this was a long episode for you guys to listen to, but that's because I did not want to go any further with I did not want to have another, another part because then I've gotten into the, it would have been trial and nope. <laughs> nope. She says nope. So if you've made it through all five parts of this, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I hope it was entertaining because it was driving me nuts. But maybe you guys thought it was, uh, I mean, not entertaining. That seems to be the wrong word. Um, hopefully I told it well enough that it was understandable. You did a beautiful job. I appreciate you and thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. April's got some funny shit. For so we got some like, funny shit. Kendra decided that we're doing funny shit. So we're doing funny shit. I feel like we need to. I think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Give it to me. Give it to me. She yelled. I'm so wet. Give it to me now. She could scream all she wanted, but I was keeping the umbrella. <laughs> That's terrible. <sighs> I bet you can't tell. Who yells like that? <laughs> I fucking do, dude. I'm like, give it to me now, asshole. I'm right. <laughs> cute. I bet you can't tell me something that will make... Be both happy and sad at the same time. A husband said to his wife, she thinks about it for a minute. And then she responds, your penis is bigger than your brother's. <laughs> How do you make a pool table laugh? Tickle its balls. I'm about to say something with balls. <laughs> right. Okay. Why did the sperm cross the road? Because it put on the wrong sock this morning. Because I put on the wrong sock this morning. Because usually when... Oh, <laughs> so cute. That one took me... I'm like, what? So oh. here's like more PG or not so bad. Why did the why does the mermaid wear um, seashells? I don't know. Because it outgrew the bee shells. <laughs> it's cute. <laughs> right? It's a little PG, not so... How I want to grow, I want to outgrow my A shells, shells. <laughs> my A minus shells. I want to, I want to <laughs> degrow. I guess I mean I just they're fucking. I want them to go away. We'll just leave it at that one right <laughs> there. Okay, how is life like toilet paper? You're either on a roll or you're taking shit from somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, this one's cute and funny, but it's like one of those. Anyways, what is Moby Dick's dad's name? Mm. Papa Boner. <laughs> that's right. That's corny as fuck. Oh, do you know with Moby Dick? I never got past like that first sentence. Call me Ishmael. Really, I fucking love Moby Dick. I tried to read that so many times, and I just. <gasps> uh... Oh my god! So. So I felt like I had to read classics, right? I'm, right. I've never read it. I was getting Moby Dick and Dick Tracy mixed up for yeah, some no. ungodly reason. Moby Dick's the big whale. Yeah, I know that. I have no and idea. It starts, that's it starts off, call me Ishmael. Right. But that's how my brain correlates things. For whatever reason, I was thinking Dick Tracy as soon as I seen yeah. Dick, and then Moby was never a thing. So like like me, when I was, you know, younger, teenager, whatever, like I'm a big reader. So I thought like if I'm really gonna be a reader, I need to read like the classics, like a tale of two cities and Moby Dick and Scarlet Le No, I can't read that shit. <sighs> I never had any interest I in reading I any of like, that. Like if I'm not interested within the first five pages, like nope. Mm, I'm just not a reader. Except for what's long green and smells like bacon. 
I already know the answer to this one. Kermit the Frog's fingers. <laughs> that one is fucking great. Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you get when you jingle Santa's balls? I don't know. A white Christmas. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't want that Christmas. No, because remember, he only he only carries one. Because he only, yeah, yeah. he's got a big sack. That's a, that's a lot of white Christmas stuff. All that. Nope. Right. Although, is, although, she although, says, although you can use it for invisible ink. Thank you, M cubed. <laughs> Thank you, M cubed. That's the fucking greatest shit ever. <laughs> the greatest shit ever. What did she say? She's all like, we're just running around with those pens, pens like splooge, like collecting people's fucking cums and writing on shit. Like they like never that. run out of ink. That's fucking great. I like that one. <laughs> what did one cheek? What did one butt cheek say to the other? Oh dear, I don't know. Together, we can stop this crap. (laughs) (laughs) Squeeze those butts. Okay. Oh, this one's cute, too. Okay. What do you call an expert fisherman? A masturbator. (laughs) Right? (laughs) All right. So here's our last one, ladies and gentlemen. What's the difference between a pickpocket and a peeping tom? Mm. One snatches your watch, the other watches your snatch. <laughs> Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I know you have to do all Why of your you fucking ads. Do that all the time. Well, I don't know. It just sounds fitting. I know that we're not done because we have to do the dot 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 dot. I feel like I've always got to do this too. You're always like, goodbye, and I'm like, I'm not done yet. Yeah, I don't know. Well, give me a list. Give me the names of the shits and I'll read them off. I know, but I zone it out because it's so much. (laughs) So here's the so much, ladies and gentlemen. It's like nocturnaldistractions.com. Right? Well, but no. Oh. (laughs) Instagram-ish? This is why we have to have our play date on how this shit fucking operates. She just called me one day and said we're doing it. it. Okay. Our email. Our email. Distractions at gmail.com. Gmail.com. Instagram. Nocturnal Distractions Podcast. Podcast. Twitter. Podcast underscore Nocturne. Oh, okay. Nocturne. Our Patreon. You can just look us up on Patreon under Nocturnal Distractions. Okay. You should do that because we still have that. We have that bonus episode on there still. You guys can listen to. Oh god. Um, we have the Buy Me a Coffee, which is the one-time donation site, and we have the website, and we have the link that links to all the links. So at the bottom of the show notes, show notes, there's one link that if you click on it, it will literally take you to a site that has every single thing that I just mentioned. It'll take you to Instagram, it'll take you to Twitter, take you to our uh, Gmail, take you to our Facebook, take you to Patreon, the Buy Me a Coffee, and every single listening platform that we are on. It's like an Insta link. Basically. We got an Insta link, ladies and gentlemen. Insta link. Insta link. That's what we're calling it. Insta link. I'm going to say that word so many times that it's not going to make sense. And I need to take a drink because now Insta-link. I got like caught. I feel mouth. like, oh no, that's Insta Matt. No. Mm. I'm trying to think of what my little printer is called for the pictures. The awesomeness wrapped Insta-max. in a little. I think it's an Insta. Instamax. It's Instax. cute. Instax. That's what I Instax. Anyway, so those are all the things. We're all at the bottom of the show notes all the time. But the easiest way to probably get a hold of us is on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I will post more pictures of fucking Mary Beth. Ugh. Shit. Um, and then, yeah. I've yeah. been gone 
for four hours. It's awesome. And eventually, I think we will probably come out with another bonus episode at some point. Yeah. Or one speaker right now. So you guys should definitely sign up Are for that. Are we allowed to shout him out? Did we already say that? We he could? hasn't said so. Oh. Um, I mean, probably could. Yeah, but we should get the... I don't think so either. I know. I really would like to get his permission first. I know he's listening. I know you're listening right now. I'm listening. You you comment. I know you're listening right now, so I'm just going to do it one of these days, even if you don't tell me I can. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think that's all. I think that's all the announcements we have right now for the moment. So you guys are lucky to get the episode early. Yeah, you. Because usually we're out on Friday morning. Yeah, uh, Tuesday mornings. Meh. We record really late Monday and really late Thursday. So we're usually out Tuesday and Friday. Yeah. But those are usually the two days. But okay. we're going to have to start trying to figure out bonus episodes. Okay. okay. Anyway, that's all. Oh, oh, the other thing is you guys got an ad-free episode this time. Ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah, because oh, we just kept on going. It was I good. I did not want to stop. Yeah. So enjoy. Enjoy. Enjoy now after you've already listened to it. By the way, it's ad free. <laughs> By the way, you're good. I hope you noticed that. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, for the love to, of God. I mean, you know, we didn't even take a pee break, yo. I yeah, we just went right through. We had to. I had to. I and had it's to. earlier in the day, and later on in the day is when like I get antsy and I I drank all day long. You know what I mean? I got to go pee multiple times. Gotta give me your okay, guys. I would love you. Yes, <laughs> and have a wonderful, wonderfulness. Afternoon, evening, morning, commute, whatever you're doing right now. What all in one bunch, jibber jabber. So, bye, bye. Guys. <laughs> bye.